our own eyes show us four stars which wander around Jupiter as does the moon around the Earth, while altogether trace out a grand revolution about the sun in the space of 12 years. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all humankind. Your hosts in England and Sweden, Matthew, Russell and Lindbold Christmas. <laughs> oh yeah. Galileo. Galileo. The one, the only. Figaro. Not Galileo, Galilei. Yeah. How- the plural of Galileo is Galilei. The past tense of William Shakespeare is, would I was Shakespeare? <laughs> <laughs> oh, English. Uh, no, I think I've done that joke before. The reason why I put that quote in, Lynn, mm-hmm. we actually speak about this, uh, the final closing points of our interview that we did. That's true. About what it must be like to be the discoverer or something. This is from Galileo himself. I just I, I just love this paragraph that he wrote somewhere. And he says, I've observed four planets, neither known nor observed by any other astronomer for my time, which have their orbits around a certain bright star, Jupiter, one of those previously known like Venus or Mercury around the sun, and sometimes in front of it, sometimes behind it, though they never depart from it beyond certain limits, all of which facts were discovered and observed a few days ago (laughs) by the help of a telescope devised by me (laughs) through God's grace, first enlightening my mind. He could have sounded really cocky there, but he was like, don't worry, it was God. I am the genius, yes, but you know, I was led by the grace. (laughs) But how cool is that? The fact that he kind of acknowledges just how important a discovery it is and how bizarre it is that it's, it's been done in the last few days by him and him alone and no one else has seen it. I, I, I genuinely think it's got to be the most mind-blowing moment I think it's of any human being. Yeah, I think I think most <laughs> people so that, that do, actually I, most humans full stop, but certainly most scientists have some kind of experience with this sort of like hyper-focused, mad maniac binge moment where it's like, I've been accidentally working for 16 hours and oh God, I haven't eaten this whole time. Wait, where am I? And like <laughs> snapping out of it. Only to discover that they've discovered the moons of Jupiter. Yeah. <laughs> like, wait, you looked down at your nose like, wait, what did I think? What is this? Who wrote this? God? Uh, so before we go any further, I must thank the uh, the two mega patrons who are Justin Roberts and Drew Wright. Thank you very much. Thank you, you very two. much. You are obviously legends. Obviously. I don't need to go on about what massive legends you are, but you know you're legends. They already know. And, and the, rest of, the rest of the gang will get a shout out at the end as we do each month now. Uh, who's our guest, Lynn? Who's our guest? So our guest today is a very special guest. I think I already waxed lyrical about her at the beginning of the interview. Um, but she, her name is Bibiana Pranath, and she is a PhD student at the University of Lund. Um, and as regular listeners know, I may or may not have an affinity for my own research topic, exoplanets. Maybe I throw in some exoplanet stuff here and there. That's never happened before, right? So our interview with Bibiana is about a very special particular type of exoplanet that you may or may not have heard of. Dun, dun, dun. Oh, didn't we promise it? Didn't we? Yeah. Prom- oh, yeah. Didn't we never mind. We I'm gonna. Do I'll drop the suspense. But, <laughs> you guys already know what's no, going. No, no, don't. Oh, sorry, don't. Sorry. Okay, don't. No, no. 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 Let, let's let's Ooh. keep the suspense going. Yeah. But I wanted to, I, I wanted to talk about the real Jupiter just for a bit. The the OG Jupiter, the namesake. There were some really interesting studies that came out. Did you see the one that was in astronomy and astrophysics called Jupiter's inhomogeneous envelope? No, I did not see that. Good words, though. Obviously, the envelope is its atmosphere. Mm. Like, you know, those colours and stuff. 
Science, clouds. yeah. I'm sure science, you know, all the science All the stuff. sciencey stuff, yeah. Can you could tell me what inho- inhomogeneous means. <laughs> I'll let you tell the word and then, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Inhomogeneous. I actually now I'm mm-hmm. suddenly second guessing. Wait, that is how you say it, right? Inhomogeneous yeah, so. is what my Swedish brain In, wants to yeah. say. Because there's so many vowels. I think that that's okay as well. Inhomogeneous. Yeah. Inhomogeneous, I think is the correct uh, (laughs) pronunciation. Um, (laughs) It means not homogenous. And it basically just means like not uniform, I guess. It depends on context. But in this case, I think it's talking about the uniformity of an atmosphere. I mean, when you think about atmospheres, you think of them as being (laughs) basically the same around one planet, right? We're Mm. learning a lot about uh, planetary atmospheres, both... uh, in 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 the sort of uh, science field and also here on the podcast, um, and we're going to be talking a lot about atmospheres in this episode. Yeah, yeah, they, we, we, we're, we're atmosphere tastic. Exactly. That's why the reason why I picked this little article. It, it came out on the second of March. I saw it in Live Science. Oh, cool! And it had the brilliant title: "Scientists Find Remains of Cannibalized Baby Planets." in Jupiter's cloud-covered belly. Okay, that's so much cooler than the inhomogeneous envelope. That should have been the subtitle. It should have been, yeah. shouldn't it, really? They don't want to give it all away in the in the headline, I guess. We, I mean, we talk about this in the interview, but mm. obviously, as you know, when Jupiter was being made, yeah. originally was like a, a rocky core. As that core's got big enough, it, it's able to trap gas around it, and then it ends up with this massive gas envelope. Exactly. Right? Yeah. I'm, I'm right in saying that, I right? I think so. <laughs> Until the Juno spacecraft, there's been this one question of, did the core form out of little pebbles, mm-hmm. like one centimeter size little rocks, or did it form out of planetesimals, like one kilometer sized right. baby baby planets? Yeah. Right? Yeah. And it's like, which one of these is it? And you can you can kind of tell because if if it was plant if if it's like clearing its orbit of planets, yeah. little planetesimals, then that could carry on going for as long as there's planetesimals in its orbit. Yeah. But it can't go carry on going when there's little pebbles because once the pebbles get big enough, it will get the gas envelope around it and then the pe- pebbles won't actually be able to penetrate the gas envelope and exactly. make the core grow bigger. They're not, then they're not sticky enough. They're not sticky enough. Yeah. They're not sticky enough. They've used these computer models to kind of work out roughly how compact the core is. They reckon it's seven uh, earth masses. Yeah. So it's a big old rocky core. Big old core. rock. It's a big old <laughs> rocky core. And they're trying to work out things like the temperature yeah, and yeah. stuff like this of, of what it's going to be like and these deep zonal flows and all kinds of things like that. But because of the Juno spacecraft, they've been able to measure the gravity, mm. the way that the gravity changes as Juno goes around in its multiple orbits of Jupiter. It's on about 40 odd or something like that now. So they've been able to measure that quite accurately and discover that it's not very homogenous. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in other words, it looks like it's the planetesimal model yeah. because you'll have had all these rocks that wouldn't have had, as they smash together, they, they're of different masses and different mm. densities is what I'm guessing. And therefore it's not as... It's not as even as if it was all made up of pebbles. That's really interesting. I haven't read this paper, uh, but maybe I'm gonna I'm gonna shoehorn this into my thesis now because that's a really interesting conclusion. So mm. thanks, Matt, for helping with my <laughs> with my, <laughs> with my <laughs> homework. I was gonna say. 
But that's really cool, isn't it? it? Is, so ba- yeah. yeah. So basically, so a lot of the, the mass in the in the center of Jupiter had already formed as little planetesimals yeah. in its orbit. Yeah. Like I, I guess, like it caught up with some of the Trojans. This is something that we talk a little bit about in this podcast about these uh, formation processes about exoplanets. And one of my favorite sort of sort of shortcuts uh, when you're talking about tricky science subjects that we don't really know that much about yet is that you can always say that this is an ongoing research question which is code for we don't know but it sounds so mm. like like a really active kind of thing like an active effort exists if you say that it's an ongoing research question um but yeah really that that is the formation process is an ongoing research question in the sense that we don't fully know and understand it yet and and yeah but I love papers like this yeah. though because it, it's like a little detective story, isn't it? That, that someone's yes. thought, well, if it if it if it does it like this, then this is what we yeah. should see. And I guess it's all a lot of its computer models, lots of its statistics. I mean, like you read this paper and it's just basically full of, yes. <laughs> full of statistics. <laughs> Delicious, it's, it's, you know. Uh, but there's some really, there's some there's some other sort of really cool things in there as well, like the the metals and the, all the sort of very dense stuff in the center yeah. isn't being mixed up in the atmosphere as much as they thought it would be. It's not being convected mm. up. And that's, so there's like loads of new mysteries yeah. that get chucked up as, as a result. I don't, I don't know if this is true. This is just something I remember reading in a textbook years ago, so maybe it's not up to date. But um, apparently the core of sort of Jupiter and Saturn is apparently metallic hydrogen, which I think sounds so cool. And the idea is just that it's hydrogen that's so dense that it basically starts to act like a, a metallic conductor. They have things like helium rain and oh, stuff yeah. like that in there. Oh, that's an album title. But it's, helium rain. Yeah, that is that helium that. rain. <laughs> For my non-existent it's dance. To, it's a follow-up to Prince's Purple Rain. A cover album where every cover is done with a helium voice. Although Prince does sing in a that's high true. voice. That's true. It's anyway, gonna go it? extra. So it's, it's gonna be very extra high. It's gonna be very high. <laughs> Sorry, off track. Anyway. <laughs> I mean, it's it's definitely rocky, but like, I, that's the thing I think people don't probably don't think about is just how unbelievably dense it's going to be in the centre yeah. of Jupiter. And uh, in, in other words, one of the things about that is that as it crushes all these planetesimals together and all these pebbles, as it crushes them down under the force of gravity, that's when gravity is like there's so much gravity going on mm. that you get loads of heat and, and more yes. and more and more yes. heat as it's crushing this stuff down. Yeah. And that causes all these convections in the in the atmosphere that that you see things like the red, you know, the giant red spot yeah. and all that, presumably. And so that's what makes the atmosphere of Jupiter so unbelievably <laughs> exciting because it's that it, there's so much heat and energy. It really doesn't get enough that. attention, in my opinion. I mean, I'm very excited about Juice, about Juice going to. Oh my god! Yeah, that that's a big one, isn't it? I feel like there's a correlation between people getting excited about particular planets after we go visit them. And I, I feel like we're approaching the Venus era and hopefully the Jupiter moon era and a couple like this. Mm, the, the the Jupiter's icy moons, yeah. I think, is really exciting. Maybe the Venus one's going to be super exciting as well. I, think I have Ven- hopes. Venus seems to have had a really raw deal. I mean, it, really it is like our sister planet after We all. went in the 70s and our rovers didn't well, work. After- well, the Russians yeah, okay. did. Well, I mean, the Russians kind of we did. We humanity than, than went. <laughs> yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. But uh, yeah, but as in, it doesn't seem to have been a priority no. for the, the Americans. They were like, the well, Europeans, there's definitely no oil much- here, so let's move on. <laughs> Just- <laughs> yeah, but we, yeah, I suppose. <laughs> I doubt it's that. Well, no, I think my, 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 <laughs> my positive spin on it, my positive take would be that 
we realized back then how enormously challenging it would be to have a sort of long-term ongoing ground mission on the surface of Venus like we do with the Mars rovers. So it, it's kind of like uh, Star Wars where the the special effects wasn't really available when they made the first three. And then like by the time the the episodes one to three came, it was like, okay, well now we can go all out. And I feel like we're, we've now matured as a human species that we're emotionally ready to take on the challenge of Venus, which I mean, if we try to go in the eighties, we just wouldn't have wouldn't we wouldn't be able to have made a mission then um as as useful as the one we'll be making sort of now in in the coming years i think so in a way it's okay it is so hard to go there and we had a little practice run on mars now we're really going for the for the jugular it's actually mind-blowing the technology that they send on things like the james webb and june i mean the the juno spacecraft the technology on that is mind-blowing i mean it's going at some points it's going so fast that it's you know it's it's hitting that kind of yeah. rel- relativistic speeds as it's as it's whizzing in. <laughs> and all that has to be taken into consideration with the electronics and I everything. And go, oh my God, it's just, it's, it's mind-blowing. I get a little bit how. nauseous when I think about engineering too hard. It's yeah, a little bit the, scary. The, the engine, it, it's, 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 I think there's really brilliant examples about, about that collaboration between scientists and engineers, yeah. isn't it? Scientists want answers and the engineers build something that will try and find those answers and it's 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 actually it is actually magical yeah it is actually magical now talking of magical so i'm i'm off to uh south america to karoo to see the maiden launch of Ariane vega c ah! i'm going to be commentating on the isa channel how do you feel <laughs> about that how, uh, a bit nervous a bit no, nervous so by the nervous. time this comes out There'll be a proper launch date, but it's coming up early July. The, the thing that I've just seen that it's launching, because I'm doing obviously a little bit of research because I've got <laughs> so, to some, some research. Stuff. It's probably good too. <laughs> yeah. You show up like, wait, what are we doing? I keep saying to my friends, I've got, I've got some work to do. So I, well, it's not rocket science. And you go, oh, yeah. wait. <laughs> actually. <laughs> so actually, damn, it actually is. But no, so it, it's launching one of the satellites along with a bunch of other sort of small satellites by various universities from Italy and yeah, and France. like CubeSats, little CubeSats, yeah, small little small nice. satellites. But the major major payload is this Laris satellite. Oh, of course. In fact, it's La it's Laris two. So the very first yes. Laris launched exactly ten and a half years ago on the maiden flight of That's Vega. Right, and now it's come full circle. It's coming full circle. Now, the original Laris is the densest known object orbiting the Earth. Is that so? Yeah. Wow. (laughs) It's basically a great big ball. There's there's no electronics on it. It's a a completely passive object. It's an enormous nickel tungsten alloy ball. Yeah. Right. And 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 they launch it and it weighs something like 380 kilograms. Laris, the original one did. It's launched into a very, very high orbit. Yeah. So it just goes spinning around. And the reason why it's super heavy is so it won't get pushed around by orbital forces. Yeah. All those like annoying things like... Those inconveniences. Solar radiation pressure. Oh, yeah. That old chestnut. So it won't get pushed around. It's covered mm. in reflecting mirrors. These are reflecting mirrors, apparently. They're off-the-shelf reflecting mirrors that are, that are just used Just Tesco for, standards. You know, Tesco yeah. standards. You can buy them down at Halfords. <laughs> And uh, but it's covered. It's covered in these. It's covered in these mirrors, 
And what they do in Italy is fire lasers at this ball as it spins around the earth. And they're able to, to measure its distance within a centimetre. Wow. Which means that they, they can like track its orbit insanely accurately. Yeah. And what and what it's trying to do is me, is is actually work out the the boundaries of general relativity. So it's it's looking at things like frame dragging yeah. and stuff like that, which is a kind of cornerstone of general relativity. How, it's amazing. How cool is, that? is that what Laris Two is? Is that a follow up? Is it going doing something similar? So so Laris Two is almost identical. It's like I, what I couldn't find better. out was if once this launches, it's going to yeah. be the densest object that we know of in, in, in orbit. Do you know um, that tungsten so in Swedish sure. actually literally means heavy stone? Tung means heavy and sten is stone. <laughs> it's, so it's just heavy it stone. Does sound, it, it does sound like a Swedish yeah. word, doesn't it? And do you know it, what's Tung? really funny? Because you know yeah. the uh, chemical symbol is just a W, which comes from Wolfram, which is what it's called in Swedish. Totally different name. So the tungsten is only in the non-Swedish speaking part of the world. It's, so I'm, I'm assuming Wolfram's got nothing to do with Wolfram Alpha, and you know the, <laughs> the, found, the, the, yeah, yeah. the, the linguistics, the, the linguistics and and search engine guy. No, I think it's not him, is it? That would be very cool, actually. Or if there was, it would be very. Or if cool he was if like the, he'd be very old, yeah. I reckon. <laughs> the the tenth generation, something like that. No, I think mm. it's I think it's because the the material itself has been known to you know humans for a long time, um, mm. and uh, I think. Tungsten was this old Swedish name for the mineral. I think is it called scheelite, um, which I think is like the ore that you would extract tungsten from. Um, and wolfram, I think, is just something that other countries might use to refer to this kind of mineral, or like wolframite is a is one as well. So I'm not 100 percent sure, but it's it's uh, not called tungsten in Swedish. And the first time I learned <laughs> that that it was called that in English, I was like, oh wait. No, what? <laughs> yeah, Wolfram apparently is from the German Wolfram, which means wolf soot. That's or wolf. Cream. That sounds incredibly haunted and cursed. So maybe, maybe, yeah, maybe, maybe they thought it was something to do with wolves. Yeah, werewolves, maybe. The actual, yeah, because in fact, in Latin, it's lupi spuma. Lupi spuma. That's that lupi. Lupi is wolf, isn't it as well? That's true. Like like mm, lupus. Mm, yeah. So uh, well, you know, I wonder if I wonder if it's werewolves' favorite. Um, there, there's anyway, a joke Laris, in there. There's Laris a joke too. in there somewhere. We'll we'll workshop it. We'll workshop it. It's made it's made out of a high density nickel alloy. Yeah. Laris two. So and it's nearly three hundred ninety five kilograms. So is that is that so it weighs more? But if it's is it made of the same stuff? Well, I guess I guess if it's uh, as, if it's uh, <laughs> I mean if it's, it must be quite small, right? If it's dense. Oh, it's yeah. It's it's super small, but insanely heavy. And just won't get knocked around by heat pressure yeah. from the sun. It's and like, this is my things. orbit. Here I am. Frankly, an inspiration to all of us. We should all aim to be Laris in our own orbits. So, yes, that is the Italian Space Agency, the yeah, ASI, that are launching that. And uh, it's going to be 6,000 kilometers in altitude, wow. 70 degree inclination. 6,000? Yeah, which will mean it will be in orbit forever. That's too long, surely. So it, <laughs> That's so, very long. Well, it'll be in orbit until until the sun blows up yeah. into a red giant and, yeah. and then probably not. Because for those who don't know, I mean, low, probably low Earth orbit is like a handful of hundreds of kilometers above the Earth. Yeah. So this is, this is really pushing the boat. 
or or not yeah, pushing it's, the it's boat massive. because they won't get pushed around. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 super it's super high, but that but that means it won't be it won't be any kind of atmospheric drag yeah. at all either. So you don't have to take well, you don't have to take much of that into sure. consideration. So, so they'll be able. To, they're able to make lots and lots of different measurements, not just about frame dragging, but lots of other yeah. measurements about uh, about the shape of the Earth and and the Earth's gravitational pull and all those kind of yeah. things. So it's it's an important mission, actually. And you'll be there to uh, see and it they, launch. And I'll be and I'll be I'll be there to see it launch and to commentate on it. So that's going to be super super exciting. In fact, exactly four years ago today, I was standing in Karoo looking at the launch tower for for Vega and they'd already fitted it out for Vega C. Wow. And and I'd gone there to 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 actually see the 120C booster bit be tested, oh, but yeah. they never did. Oh. So that's how long it takes to develop these rockets. That was four it years really ago does. when they were testing the testing the booster for this thing. So yeah, um I'm really looking forward to that. It's gonna be sounds totally amazing. Awesome. So where where can yeah. our listeners most easily find you when you're doing that? I will definitely put it as a link on 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 the website and I would be tweeting about it. Yeah. I will tweet about my entire journey. Uh, but um, I guess it's on the ESA website or on yeah. the ESA YouTube channels and things like that. So yeah, just go to European Space Agency. Yeah, you just find me. Really just- <laughs> there. Or, or, or maybe or maybe Ariane Space or, yeah, or any of the usual. The Italian Space Agency. Yeah, all the usual, such, <laughs> you know, suspects. Yes. But I'm really, I'm really super excited. I'm so excited for I'm, you. I, I can't, and yeah, I'm excited for yeah, me because I get to I'm listen to you do it and it's going to be amazing. Yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's going to be awesome. Um, so yeah, that's one really exciting launch to look, to look forward to. And uh, did you see the picture that I've stuck in, 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 in the notes of Jupiter and vortices, by the way, before we go to the interview? Oh, yeah. So there's a picture of plankton blooms in the ocean being swirled around by ocean currents. And then there's a picture from Juno of vortices on Jupiter, and they almost look identical. It's crazy. And so all the Juno data about vortices and and how everything swills around and how all those kind of mechanics of vortices works, all that data has been given to oceanographers to help them with their studies of the of the world's oceans. This is this is one of these things that I cool, think one of the reasons to study space stuff in general um, is exactly this because the the thing is that the universe is like our sandbox where every kind of physics, chemistry, biology that you can imagine can well biology asterisk there but certainly physics and chemistry can happen mm. and we can study them in these extreme environments that we can't recreate on a lab in a lab on Earth. And, and uh, this is exactly one of these kinds of examples where you actually get to learn something by looking beyond your planet to help oh. you learn about your planet. Isn't that nice? Yeah, it's genius. Well, yeah, look, it's funny, isn't it? Looking at another planet yeah. that's billions of miles away helps you understand your own planet that you're actually on. Which is a great segue into the interview. What happens if you look mm. at a very extreme type of exoplanet? So here we go. Shall we just go straight to it? Let's do it. I'm so excited. I am very excited. Akuta, the interplanetary podcast, putting the ace back into space. Uh, so today we have the great honor to have the wonderful, beautiful, amazing Bibiana Prinot. Welcome to the show. So Bibiana is um, not only a great scientist, but a good friend of mine. And she is a fellow PhD student uh, here in Sweden, except she is at Lund University, uh, which is down south. 
And Bibiana, like myself, studies exoplanetary atmospheres, but she has a much cooler research topic than I do because she is specializing on this particular subset of exoplanets. Not just any old exoplanet, but this particularly, I was going to say cool one. It's not cool, actually. It's the opposite of cool. It's absolutely <laughs> the opposite of cool. And we promised this, didn't we? We actually promised this on the last podcast. We did. Yeah, yeah, yeah we, we did, did a, a teaser. teaser. Bibiana, I have to confess, before I even asked you, I was like, oh, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to get Bibiana to get on here <laughs> to talk about ultra Jupiter. It's like the Jupiter. Bob Geldof <laughs> maneuver, that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you actually you wanted can't me the fans. to listen to your podcast in advance and be like, wait, what? They're going to invite me? Yeah. <laughs> okay, okay, yeah, I see. Exactly. Surprise. Oopsie. Yeah, so... So I think I think we've spoken to our listeners before about hot Jupiters mm-hmm. because you know when we're looking at planets outside of our solar system we're obviously seeing planets of types that we don't even have in our solar system always people know about small rocky planets like Earth and Mars and stuff and then you have these big gas planets like Jupiters and Saturn but the thing about exoplanets in the the thing about planets in other solar systems is that they don't always fit into one of these one or two uh, categories, let's say. So hot Jupiters is a kind of exoplanet that we don't have in our solar system, which is a Jupiter-like planet, except it's much, much closer to the host star, which means it's hot. So Bibiana, why don't you tell us what an ultra-hot Jupiter is then? Oh, wow. So I guess if I start with that, I, <laughs> I can get some people fighting over it because I think there is no official definition for an ultra-Jupiter that everyone would agree on. <laughs> but we True. normally use it as being a hot Jupiter that has a temperature that is higher than 2000 Kelvin. At least that's sort of what I define it as. But um, I would say... Hot Jupiters in general are planets that are in orbits that are shorter than 10 days, so Earth days. Um, So yeah, you basically try to limit it by that as a first measure, and then you go to, okay, now we look at the temperature, and if the temperature is expected, or the equilibrium temperature is expected to be higher than 2000 Kelvin, we actually call it an ultra-hot Jupiter. But yeah, people fight about it. That's ridiculously hot. That that's hotter than the surface of star of stars, right? Yeah, uh, cold. Yeah, star, yeah. So, solar type stars are like five thousand, six thousand, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So but most most stars are little um, kind of rubbishy, like <laughs> red no, dwarfs. Little, you know, little yeah, planets, no, but that, basically. You know, little crap stars. I bet that's. I, Don't let the brown dwarf I bet community that, I bet hear that's this. hotter than Proxima Centauri or something like that. No, I wouldn't say so. I I know that there is one ultra Jupiter that. I actually talked to my PhD colleague about this today. Uh, we would want to call it a ultra mega hot Jupiter because it has a temperature <laughs> of like four and a half thousand Kelvin, which is hotter than some stars. That is really the case. But I would say most of the planets that we know today that go into this category of ultra hot Jupiters are more around like, I would say maybe 3000, 2000 Kelvin. So really somewhere in between. So they're not quite as hot as stars, but definitely a lot hotter than we yeah. could ever imagine and definitely not as comfortable as Earth. Yeah, I've, I've just looked up <laughs> Proxima Centauri and it's exactly 3,000 Kelvin. So, so it's, oh, it's, 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 yeah, it's not it's not too far off, is it? Well, here's a, I'm already, I'm going to start by going off topic immediately <laughs> just to get that out of the way. <laughs> but I mean, because I'm, I'm just thinking now, you know, when we, when we look at Jupiter um, and also in case our listeners don't know, we don't know that much about the interiors of uh, the gas planets in our solar system, like mm-hmm. um, Jupiter and Saturnus. Sorry, that's Swedish. 
Uh, Jupiter and Saturn and, and Neptune and Uranus, we don't know that much about their interior. We know a little bit from models and things like that, but it's very difficult to explore the surface of a gas giant or ice giant because they don't really have a surface mm -hmm. to land on in the same sense. But I'm wondering then, because I think what we think about those planets are that they have like ice cores, you know, that even though they don't have a flat surface to stand on where there's a clear boundary where the surface starts and the atmosphere begins, but they do usually have, we think that it probably sort of gradiates into an ice core. But yes, do we I then know. know what's in uh, uh, the, the course of, of hot Jupiters and ultra-hot Jupiters? Uh, I mean, you brought it very well to the point. We don't know anything or not that much about our own gas giants in our own solar system. So how are we even going to figure out stuff about planets that are light years away? So the problem with those things is that if you try to sort of limit what they are made of, you're sort of restricted to how do we even detect those planets? And then you can go into characterizing. So you need to know their mass, you need to know their radius. But that is really difficult to get because we're observing, for example, from the ground, or we're also observing from space. But then there's just stuff happening all around. If you're observing from the ground, we have our own atmosphere that is sort of in the way. Uh, when we do this so observation, annoying. yeah, so annoying, but we're so happy we have it, right? <laughs> but on the other hand, it's like also, if you really try to characterize these kinds of planets, you will always hit a dead end very quickly because, yeah, you can just not look into it. But I guess from a formation point of view, is one of the big questions that is still open, how did those planets even form? So how did they end up in these closing orbits? Um, I think we had a discussion recently, you and I, about how did those planets even form? Is it obvious yeah. <laughs> that they had to form outside the so-called ice line where you can form these icy cores? But what happens if they then move close into their host stars? This stuff's just melting. So I guess the hard part is because we are observing them from here, from, from so far away, we end up just being able to see the very top layers of the atmosphere of these planets. So we have no idea what's inside. That's true. And I mean, for those of uh, our listeners who know about the transit method, when we look at exoplanets, when you see the planet uh, that transits across the face of the star, and then that sort of backlights the planet enough that we can study it. When we're looking at the atmosphere that way, what Bibiana is saying is true. We are really only seeing the top of the atmosphere. You can't see that far far down into well, it. Well, I mean, when, when you're talking about observation here, it, mm -hmm. how have you observed these ultra-hot Jupiters? I, I, what, what sort of signals are you getting? Presumably you're not seeing pictures of these things. You're just getting some form of signal. <laughs> we wish. <laughs> we wish we could. Like Pokemon pictures. cards. Yeah. yeah, that would be nice. Or just putting a camera out and just taking a picture with your iPhone yeah. would also be nice, right? <laughs> no, so we are actually using different methods in order to, to study these planets so we can either go and try to look at them in the sense of i want to figure out what their mass is what their planet is but if i really want to figure out what is in their atmosphere i need to be super lucky and have them as lynn said going in front of the star as we observe them and what we use are then instruments here on earth um, because we get them at so-called high resolution. So we're really, really able to distinguish from where the light comes at what wavelength. And we really just observe them as they go in front of their host star or as they sort of pass next to it in a sense. So not in so-called secondary eclipse when they're behind the star. So we get either the so-called transmission spectrum when the light passes through the atmosphere and parts of it are then blocked 
um, or par- parts of the light are then blocked by the atmosphere, while when you have it on the side, you then have the emission, which is at a slightly different wavelength, given that the temperature is not as high as the temperature of the host star. And we use instruments like, for example, Espresso on the Very Large Telescope. I have observed with Espresso, but sadly only in designated visitor mode, meaning I had to sit at home via Zoom and I had someone else doing the actual work. And I was just there like, yeah, start it and then, yeah, end it. So they really did the work for me. (laughs) But we were also sort of happy enough to get observations on La Palma on the Canary Islands, where we could go and observe in person with the FIES spectrograph on the Nordic Optical Telescope. So we could actually sit in a control room and operate the telescope. So really from sitting there, planning it, then pointing it towards the star when we knew the planet is going to move in front. So, so I'm assuming you you just you pick a, 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 a hot, what you hope is an ultra-hot Jupiter, you, you point it at the star that you know it's going to transit in front of, and and take readings that way so it's not, <laughs> it's not all about luck so we can actually calculate these <laughs> yeah. things and uh, there's some thought that goes into these things thank <laughs> yeah. you very much man <laughs> we're not just picking a random star yeah. there are a lot of uh, a lot of things that have to go into it so for example you always have to think is this star even bright enough that i'm gonna be able to see it from earth but there are so many things that you have to take into consideration but um we mostly go for these targets i would say that fall in this sort of super puffy region so we know okay they have a so-called inflated atmosphere meaning that yes we the call puffy them- is the technical term i may add which <laughs> yeah, i think is that, great that, we literally say they're puffy or super puffs if you want to call it like or that. super puffs <laughs> yeah. yeah so we sort of go for these planets where we know that their radius is a bit bigger Um, in the sense of, yes, I'm talking about an ultra-hot Jupiter, so I would assume it has a radius of one Jupiter and it has a mass of one Jupiter mass, right? But they're actually inflated in the sense the mass is around one Jupiter mass, but the radius is then maybe 1.7 Jupiter masses. So they're actually a bit extended, meaning that it's easier to get this light passing through the atmosphere than actually also being able to see it. Doesn't doesn't that lead to some form of like measurement bias that you're you're only kind of measuring? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I was actually asked during the first talk I gave at a conference, why do you even care about ultra Jupiters? And I was a bit baffled by this question because I was like, oh yeah, it's my research topic. <laughs> you mean you don't? <laughs> you don't? But for me, one really big aspect is that this is really what we can do. So we are really biased towards these planets in the sense of it's not only their atmospheres being inflated, but it's also them transiting fairly often because of those short periods. So if you want to observe from Earth, you need to be able to point your telescope in during the night. You also need to be lucky that you have nice weather because we know we have clouds. Uh, we also know that some <laughs> of, of these planets do have clouds. <laughs> so it is really, um, we really have to sort of limit ourselves to the planets that we can observe and now yeah. also with with james webb for example we will open the possibilities to also observe planets that are smaller and around smaller stars that are further away but you still have to keep that in mind that you have to observe probably multiple times in order to get enough signal out of this atmosphere so it's not just all easy peasy observing. Those, yeah, yeah those I was about I was about to say. So it it it, it transit across, and, and obviously you're not actually seeing a black dot, are you? You're just essentially seeing a a, a ridiculously small dimming. 
of the host yeah. star and and then looking at that light and saying what's missing now and then working out what the atmosphere mm. is made of 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 that yeah. transiting object is that right is that my layman's version of it i think that that's pretty much exactly what we do so we really look at this while we know it is passing in front and then we try to remove the star in a sense of we assume the star to be constant which is also <laughs> an assumption of course but we assume the star to be constant and try to remove the stellar light and say okay what's left is now the planet it must be the planet because there's nothing yeah. else right it's kind of like when you're learning algebra for the first time and you go from going that like one plus one equals something and you go to like two minus something equals one well i mean, <laughs> Do you know what here's, I mean? Here's, yeah. here's a question for you. you you you're obviously looking for molecules in the atmosphere or are you? And and if so, surely at that temperature, most most molecules have, have have been ripped apart, haven't they? That's a really good question. So I'm actually more interested in in going for atoms or ions because, as you said, at these temperatures, molecules. How oh, that's going to be a difficult difficult thing. <laughs> so uh, at these temperatures, you really have dissociation. You have ionization. So meaning that all these molecules get, get ripped apart and you have just their components left over. But you also have that some of these atoms get ionized through to this really heavy radiation coming from the host star. So lucky enough, there are also ways of searching for ions in a sense. And one thing that is very easy nowadays, or I would say pretty standard nowadays, is to search for iron in these atmospheres, iron and titanium. But you still also get some uh, fancy molecules, like metallic ones, for example. Exactly. And I mean, they're they're a little bit. Metals tend to hold up better against extreme heats. Yeah. What is it? Titanium monoxide. I, I thought right? I thought astronomers called everything metal. Uh, yes, we do. <laughs> yeah, my favorite metal is oxygen. <laughs> yeah, <so>. I know. <laughs> but this is the thing. I think one of the re- one of the reasons that I have a, a soft spot for for hot Jupiters and ultra hot Jupiters is just because it is such a, a weird environment that we don't have an example of it in our mm-hmm. solar system. The, the, the cool thing about astronomy in general is that it's the sandbox that can create crazy environments that we can't study in a lab on Earth. And so hot Jupiters is a, a great example of exploring what would happen under this very extreme circumstance. No, I interrupted. What, what was it about the, these, these crazy metal, actual metals? What was it? T- titanium oh, yeah. Watty. <laughs> Is it titanium monoxide? Yeah. Uh, it's I, one, right? I'm actually thinking, yeah, probably would be called titanium monoxide if you actually write it out, right? Because it has only one O, but we always say titanium oh, oxide. Oh, is it titanium oxide? Yeah, We, we go for titanium Boom. oxide. I was just thinking, oh, wow, chemistry really passed yeah. me. So that, that has been quite some time. It's like uh, dihydrogen monoxide, right? It's, uh... Yeah, it's like, what, what are we talking about? Yeah, no. Yeah. Um, so, yes, so titanium oxide has a pretty special role supposedly in ultra jupiters meaning that we can actually postulate in a sense what it is doing in these atmospheres and this sort of yeah i guess it's a bit of teaser to my paper that i published in january <laughs> this year um we detected titanium oxide on uh, wasp 189b which is an ultra hot jupiter uh, and Titanium oxide is thought to be causing temperature inversions. And that is probably a bit of a hard term to just throw out, but you can just imagine we also have that on Earth. So in our stratosphere, the temperature sort of is inverted. So the profile is inverted, meaning that if we go higher up, it actually doesn't get cooler, but it gets warmer. 
Um, this is caused in our case by ozone, while on ultra Jupiters, this is thought to be happening due to, for example, titanium oxide or vanadium oxide. Now, how do you come to that conclusion? Is that something you observe or something you infer? This is more this something. Is a philosophical that, question. <laughs> this is more something that that you bring from theory, in a sense. Mm. There are quite a few papers that sort of start putting together these atmospheres, in a sense, or try to model them, as in trying to figure out what is the chemistry that is happening at these temperatures, what is the transfer that is happening, so how is energy transported from the lower regions of the atmosphere to the higher regions. And then they observe, okay, if we sort of add titanium oxide or vanadium oxide, we result in this temperature inversion in the end. So this is definitely something from a theoretical point of view and not something that we could easily observe. So, so you observe something and then, then the experimenters come and say, yeah, well, if, 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 if this was happening, then what you have observed is probably what's happening. So it fits the data, as it were. <laughs> yeah, so I guess that's one that, of the, the, the big battle. points. Yeah, exactly. That's one of the big points <laughs> that I find very fascinating is that we try to sort of link theory and observations all the time, but we're not really able to predict properly what is happening or what we are going to observe. So yes, we have models and then we assume something very drastically, like for example, these atmospheres are isothermal, so there's just like one temperature. Um, but on the other hand, we know that we are not able to completely reproduce what the observations tell us. And one of these examples is like we're observing ionized uh, atoms or yeah, ions, and we cannot really predict them from, from theory. So whenever we try to model them, they just get completely lost. And we're like, OK, where did they go? What has happened? And we just don't know the answer. Yeah, it's why I think modeling is such a huge problem part of astronomy like i mean in all sciences um, models and I'm, I'm talking like computer simulations um are really useful but i think in astronomy in particular it's such an important bridge between theory and observation because if you have a theory that predicts a sort of behavior and maybe your observations are not good enough because the thing that you're looking at is too faint or too far away or your telescope's not good and then by having a simulation that proves that you know shows what the theoretical behavior should be then you have something to compare your observation to. And then if it looks like it matches up pretty well with your model, then that is a stronger argument for, for interpreting your observation the way it is. I mean, think about if you're trying to, if you're, if you're looking at like a really blurry photograph and you're trying to figure out the face that you're looking at or something like that, it's a lot easier to figure out who you're looking at if there's like, well, here are three other faces. Uh, which one does it look the most like? Because then you can be like, oh, you know, the color and whatever. So, so models are hugely important. Kids listening, if you want to be an astronomer, start programming. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. I actually talked about that with, with my family because I was like, yeah, I mean, you never gave me the chance to learn coding. And then my family was like, <laughs> oh, wait a second. You studied at ETH in Zurich. And I was like, yeah, it was very theoretical. Uh, so <laughs> the studies were very theoretical. So in, and now I basically end up coding every day. So I think if you want yeah. to become an astronomer, you definitely have to know how to code yes. things up. We are glorified programmers, basically. Like even if you're <laughs> not a theory time. person, even if you're not working no. in theoretical work and trying to get atmospheres out there or like trying to model these atmospheres, but actually observing them, you still need to have the skills then to reduce your data, for example, and be able to actually read something out of it. Yeah. So it's a very big part. God, I... 
I can't think of a single branch of astronomy now that I'm thinking about it that doesn't use coding. Actually, no, it's, true. it's a it's a huge it's a it's a huge uh, uh, hugely important tool. Uh, and, and, and presumably, so not not just coding, but but statistics as well. Presumably, there's a, a, a Ooh, whole yeah. bunch yeah. of yeah, statistical yeah, yeah. kind of things that you have yeah. to know. Long-time listeners may have noticed that there is a lot of things in space, (laughs) which means that a lot of the time we have very large data sets and stuff like that. Uh, I mean, now people are even talking about using machine learning for for Mm. sort of astronomy applications. Say that you have six gazillion photos uh, of light sources in the sky, which ones are stars and which ones are galaxies. Like you could go through them one by one, but if you can teach a machine to do it in like 0.5 seconds, then that's pretty good. Yeah, I mean, one of the things about building observatories these days is is the data is coming off so fast that you have to have water-cooled hard drives and stuff like that. that, that it's like the- <laughs> exactly. yeah, absolutely. Statistics is definitely a very big part. Like also, I think for me, it's very much learning by doing. So sometimes I'm like, okay, but how do I quantify what I actually detect now? So yeah. is this a strong detection? Is it just very weak? Is it tentative? Is it even there? So I'm really trying to sort of figure out ways that are sort of statistically sound in order yeah. to convince the science community that I'm actually detecting something. It's, it's a very big part. It, it, does, does, does that make ultra-hot Jupiters quite interesting? Because presumably they are, they are extreme, they are big, they are hot. So, so that some of, the, some of these data points are actually going to be pretty unambiguous. Does that make them sort of slightly better to deal with? That is absolutely the case, yeah. In the sense of, I, I wouldn't say better to deal with, but I would definitely <laughs> yeah, well, not I would as say bad. Easier to deal with in yeah. in the sort of sense that yes, of course, you can still be unlucky and have bad weather. You can still be unlucky and have a volcano erupting on an island that you're supposed to be observing on. Um, but on something the, that actually happened, by the way. Yeah, it absolutely happened. It was nice <laughs> to see a volcano in action, but it was definitely not so nice for the observation. Um, yeah, I think that. Ultra Jupiters are just more accessible, but they yeah. also offer, like, I'm not talking about them as like, yeah, they're the easy targets. You should really go for them because you get easy science <laughs> out of it, right? No, I think the important part of uh, behind Ultra Jupiter is they are so extreme and they're so different from everything that we know. So we are very much self-centered in a sense that we're always like, yeah, everything is like the solar system, right? So when we detected the first exoplanet around the sun-like star, we were like, but what is this weird thing? It's so much bigger than we actually thought. It, it is so much heavier than we actually thought. Oh, and wait a second. It must be so big or so heavy in a sense. Otherwise, it wouldn't have been detected in the first place. So it's very much about this is absolutely not what we expected. And that's why people are curious and want to figure out more. But presumably it's, it's an extreme environment as well. So like, and extreme environments are, are normally good to study. They're normally interesting because they, they eke out certain things. Yes. I also think like, I always try to sort of compare it to earth and then be like, okay, so if I try to compare it to Earth, what, what is the advantage of actually being able to observe an ultra Jupiter? And yeah, I mentioned a few of like, oh yeah, it transits every now and then. Figure out if you have to observe Earth from somewhere else, you have to wait a year. And then if you're unlucky, it actually falls within a day and not a night. So you'll have to wait again. Um, no, the, I guess the sort of 
other part that is very interesting is that the chemistry is completely different. So you don't have these really big molecules that we have that are making everything more difficult. And then you have to think about, okay, wait, what can happen to these things? Then also think of if it's cooler, you will get clouds. We have them here on Earth. I'm not really happy with clouds and ultra Jupiters because they will just block the light and nothing will come through. So we know that if you go to sort of hot Jupiters and then you look at their colder night sides, for example, um, or if you go to even cooler planets, that there are going to be clouds on them. And we have to make an attempt to model them on the one hand, but we also have to accept that they're going to be there and that there might be high altitude clouds that we are actually sadly observing in a sense. While on ultra Jupiters, we mostly just neglect them because we know it's so hot that it's going to be really difficult for clouds. But this is very much like centered on what I'm working with in the sense that we are mostly operating in the visible wavelength range. So we're very, or I'm very limited to these ions that are very strong absorbers in these wavelength bands. While if you go then to other wavelength regions, you might have other components actually being stronger uh, in absorbing. So if you really go to, for example, the infrared, which is also what James Webb is doing, <laughs> or <laughs> what Lynn is doing. <laughs> if you actually go to, to these uh, infrared wavelengths, you have to think about whole different things. So just imagine um, one thing that is really strong absorbing in infrared is water. Where do we have water? We have water in our own atmosphere. So if we're observing from the ground, oh, we have to think of actually removing the water first before we claim a detection. So we have to correct for that as well. So it's an easier target to go for something that we know is probably probably completely different from what we're actually used to. Yeah, I mean, talking talking about that. So will will James once James Webber's up and running? Uh, is is it which is yeah, very which soon? Is, which, I may which ask. Is, yeah, it's imminent, mm-hmm. isn't it? It's will that get hot Jupiter? Will hot Jupiter get a bit of observation time? Will you? Will, is it worth it, or is there nothing to see? In the in, in the in the eye of eye of web, if you see what I mean, <laughs> I definitely see what you mean. So I know that at least for the first um, early data release programs, there are some observations of ultra Jupiter's plant um, that are basically also there to sort of confirm that it's working. Um, the thing with James Webb is that I think is is very interesting, given that it operates in the infrared and it's outside of our own atmosphere, we actually get the chance to look without having our own atmosphere in the way. So yes, ultra Jupiter are definitely a target. And one very important aspect that observing in space makes so much more interesting is that we're actually able to see these features coming in and we don't have to so-called normalize it. So we don't have to sort of remove the star from it and be like, oh no, yeah, this star is in the way so we sort of divide it out so we only get relative abundances while if we actually observe in space we're going to be able to tell how much of something is in this atmosphere and this is where James Webb is really really coming in. One of the reasons I'm so excited about James Webb and and as someone who does mainly ground astronomy uh, ground-based astronomy is that you can actually use them sort of in tandem parallel where exactly. they, they support each other because the the biggest difference between a space-based telescope and a ground-based telescope is, as Bibiana said, on the ground, okay, you have to wrestle with the atmosphere, which is annoying. It's in the way. But you have these huge, huge telescopes and the mirror sizes on them are far, far bigger than even a huge 
space-based telescope like uh, James Webb, where the light collection that you're getting, like the actual amount of photons that you are receiving is much greater. And then, okay, on the spa- on, on the other hand, your space-based telescope, sure, great, you don't have uh, the, the atmosphere to deal with, You come the light comes straight in, but it's collecting a much smaller amount, so then the resolution, as Bibiana mentioned, is not as good. But then you can imagine if you take this gra- the big ground-based telescopes and a space-based telescope like James Webb and you look at the same thing, then you have two pieces of data of the same thing and you can kind of use the best of both worlds. Um, especially for some of the these ground-based telescopes that we have do actually cover the same uh, wavelengths that James Webb does. So they, you can get really, really... You, you're basically attacking the, the, the observation from, from two angles in that way. I mean, so it's very more than for two angles in a, in a sense, right? Yeah. Because, I mean, <laughs> yeah, you're exactly. not only combining this sort of low-resolution data from space from James Webb with the high-resolution data on the ground, but you're also sort of combining different wavelength regions. So, for yes. example, you can always observe something indivisible while you then have James Webb observing in the infrared and get information from yeah. both parts. And also precisely sort of link it then back to what we talked about before that you also will get some insight in how to model these atmospheres given that you know more about them at that point yeah the I mean, the chemistry in these atmospheres is, is so interesting something that's worth mentioning is that um, these ultra hot Jupiters and hot Jupiters when they're very close when planets are very close to their host star they tend to get tidally locked so oh, you get yes. a permanent day side and a permanent night side unlike earth that's spins around its own axis, you get this nice cycle of day, night, day, night. If you imagine that the planet is permanently one side, it's always facing the star and one is always facing away, then you're going to get uh, a cold side and a, a um, hot side, right? And so for a planet like Mercury, where this happens, um, then you have a hot side and a cold side, but there's no real real atmosphere on Mercury. So you have like hundreds of degrees on one side and then minus whatever degrees on the other side. Um, but when you have a gaseous planet like this, weather moves (laughs) and Mm -hmm. atmospheres move and it's like a fluid thing that goes on. So then you have these really interesting weather systems and like what happens then at the perma sunset or perma sunrise on these planets. That's really cool. Mercury is even more interesting if you think about it, because Mercury is not only tidally locked in the sense there is one hot side and one cold side, but it's actually in a resonance. So I think it's a two to three oh, yeah, resonance. Mm. Resonance. I think so. so. So yeah, I don't remember wh- which way around. It either orbits in like <laughs> two two times yeah, while it even. turns three times or the yeah. other way around. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you can imagine it like the moon on Earth. We're always facing the same, or looking at the same side of, of the moon yeah. because it's always facing the same side because yes. it's exactly turning uh, at the same speed as it's orbiting, in a sense. And Precisely. What, one cool thing we've also... You mentioned chemistry, but I think it's also worth mentioning dynamics in ultra Jupiters. So because these planets are so close into the star and you have so much radiation coming from these stars. So we're talking about stars of temperatures with maybe like 8,000 Kelvin, so more than twice as hot as the planets there that we're talking about. And the, they are just bombarding their planets with, with so much radiation. And then there comes this wind from the really backside that is heated up, that is permanently, as you said, a permanent day side. It just blows it around. You've got this the day side of this of this ultra hot Jupiter, 
and presumably that that is where it's like your two thousand to three thousand Kelvin. It's it's like proper roasting hot. Way too uh, hot. <laughs> but presume the other side's in shadow, right? So, but pr- presumably it doesn't get that cold because you've got this ridiculous weather systems. I mean, the, there must be a lot of wind on that on on a hot Jupiter, on an ultra hot yeah, Jupiter. Yeah. So we're going back again to this sort of observational bias a bit that we have, right? Mm. Because we're looking at these upper layers of the atmosphere and we see that these winds sort of blow over, but there must also be some redistribution with like winds from the lower layers blowing back or something like that in order for the atmosphere to actually be maintained on both sides. Um, I think the hard part with, with these observations is we're actually just probing the terminator region. So we're really, when they go in front, we're just looking at this very thin sort of annulus going around. Where the sunset is? Yeah, sort of, right? So we're sort of looking at this layer between super hot and super cold, if you want to make it super extreme. So whenever I have to draw it, I make one side bright red and the other dark blue (laughs) in order to get people really uh, excited about it. But it's more probably some sort of gradient that goes over these edges. And we are observing this light passing through this atmosphere in this terminator region. And we're also observing it sort of at different angles, if, if you want to say so. So because the planet is moving in front of the star, it sort of rotates ever so slightly while it goes in front of the star, resulting in different regions of the atmosphere being passed through while observing. And because the atmosphere is so inflated, you can actually try to disentangle where the light comes from and try to figure out, hey, is it from the morning terminator, as we call it, so the terminator that comes first, or from the evening terminator where it comes second or afterwards. And the evening terminator that says, I'll be back. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, and then you have these two terminators that contribute <laughs> in a different <laughs> They have these two terminators contributing in a different way. And yeah, you can sort of see these differences also in chemistry on these two edges. And presumably that's when... That's when it first starts transiting. It could be its evening terminator, and when it's leaving, it could be its morning terminator. It's exactly the other way. It's around, the other way around, actually. Isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Damn it. So it's hard to go through. Actually, in the morning. So I was going to go that way round. I thought it's bound to be the other way round. <laughs> so I'll say I'll say it the counterintuitive way. <laughs> I must admit, I find morning and evening terminator really stupid as a naming convention. I would actually go for leading and trailing terminator because it just makes more sense. That makes we're more not sense. talking about yeah. morning and evening on these planets anyways. Who defines a morning yeah. and an evening on a planet that is permanently hot? What's, what are the time zones? <laughs> exactly, what are the time zones? Right? Yeah. <laughs> That's not going to time zones. They are bad. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, it's it's so crazy because I mean, take a stupid, boring planet like Earth. And I mean, I've said this before and I'll say it again. Imagine that you're an alien looking at Earth and you're like, okay, rocky planet uh, has some water oceans, like 15 degrees average. Okay. Then you look at Earth for real and it's like we have uh, we have the Sahara Desert and we have Brazilian rainforest and we have the French Riviera and we have the, the, the North and South Pole. Like we have so many different... First of all, climates, then seasons, and then like local weather patterns. It can be raining here and not five kilometers away. Like weather is so complicated and there are so many things that that 
influence it and 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 shape it and form it and you know mm. we we can't even predict the weather on our own planet more well, than, well, it, more well than including a few, life a week or so i mean like, life yeah. itself has yeah. a profound effect on the weather so i mean yeah but presumably when you get to something that's like mega extreme you're cutting off those kind of subtle do you think do you think the weather weathers? on hot jupiters are they more or less complicated than like a, a sort of Earth, like with a you know dynamic oceans and 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 sequestering into rocks and stuff like that. I don't know. Are they more or less complicated? Do you think you're giving me the hard questions today? Huh? Yeah, I'm so I love sorry. That I, know, I love that say, question because in my mind, <laughs> it, I'm, I don't no, know I'm the going, answer. I don't know I'm, the answer. I'm I'm, I'm 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 on the edge of my chair thinking, yeah, I can't work this yeah. one out. Is it going to be more complicated I, or less complicated? I would say we have to expect that it's probably going to be different in any possible <laughs> oh, yes. way that we could have ever imagined. Oh, okay, okay, okay. okay. <laughs> nice diplomatic answer. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm Swiss, right? I'm, I'm neutral. I'm yes, going to be very neutral. <laughs> I think that we have to stop thinking about us as the prime example of, of everything. Yeah. Be it, just think back in history when we thought that we are the center of the universe or the center of the of the solar system, like not even universe, yeah. solar system. I think that we have to sort of be open-minded and go for, okay, this is probably nothing that we could ever imagine that is happening yes. on these planets. And yes, we're trying to model it. Yes, we're trying to observe it and understand what we're seeing. But most likely we're going to be here in a few years, whatever amount you want to put in there. <laughs> and be completely like impressed and out of our minds yeah. with what we're going to observe and going to yeah. see. Just imagine being able to travel to something different yeah. in a sense, or like taking taking a spaceship and going somewhere, travel wherever you want <laughs> and look at it close up. No. Um, it may be the same. It may be the same ballpark, but it's not the same sport. Here, I, I mean, here's, yeah. here's a question for you. I mean, presumably, these ultra hot Jupiters are, 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 are extremely close to their parent stars. Like that. Like they. They. I've read somewhere that they have. They. They orbit every two or three days. Some of them, like <laughs> crazy close. Now that's close enough, isn't it? Where in, in the region that we don't even understand our own star about why it's so hot there you know we, we like one of the primary space missions is to try yeah, and yeah. work out true. why the corona is so hot is is this something that that once you, once you get data from that spacecraft that it feeds into what you're doing is this is this one of those things where you're looking cross discipline across lots and lots of different data points to try and mm. make sense of what what's happening at your end I was actually at a conference in, in Las Vegas in the beginning of May, where we also, it was actually an exoplanet conference, but we actually had some speakers that were talking about stars and that were like, hey, you cannot just forget about your stars. We're like, yeah, but we just ignore them. We just remove them. <laughs> and we don't They're care boring. about them. It's like but forgetting about yeah, dry. Definitely yeah. some. <laughs> it's absolutely something like that. Like we, we always tend to forget that the star might be also behaving weirdly and it's or weirdly differently than we expect it yeah. to do. And I guess we have to start opening our minds, actually taking into account what we learn from the sun. But then we also see that of course the sun is probably not the best example for the stars we are looking at when we're observing these planets. So some of the most uh, well-known ones, they're orbiting so-called A stars, which are stars that are a lot hotter so I talked about like 8,000 Kelvin before. Some of them are 10,000 Kelvin hot, uh, so nearly twice as much as the sun. And then you sort of 
end up with, okay, but how do these stars compare to the sun? And then you get a, down a completely different hole in the end. And one thing that I always take as for granted with the planet I have been observing is that the star is a, an A star that is fast rotating. So all the possible lines that you could see due to absorption of, on the star are so wide, they're completely widespread, I can just ignore them, which sounds terrible to say in that way. But yeah, I'm one <laughs> of those hilarious. people that tries to ignore the star as much as possible. But actually, yes, we have to learn from these space missions that we're, we're doing yeah. also in our solar system. And we definitely also have to account for possible variabilities of stars. Um, also, yeah, as we, as we continue in this field, we have to open our minds and get stellar people in trying to help us understand what we're doing. We're quite a young field. So yeah. exoplanet atmospheres is only really a thing. I don't even know when it started, maybe like 2000, 2001 sort of with the first transiting planet. De Decades-ish, yeah. Yes, yeah, so we're really young. And this means in the end that we have to take all the influences from all the other fields and try to learn. I always say, let's not try to reinvent the wheel, but we can maybe also learn, learn something from, I don't know, galaxy formation. Maybe mm. we can get people with their knowledge or star evolution in order to yeah. better understand what we are actually looking at. It's not only learning from spacecraft, but it's also learning from interdisciplinary fields. Yeah. Absolutely. And I mean, especially with, uh, with um, you know, this transit method that we were describing, which is like the bread and butter of atmosphere, yeah. <laughs> exoplanetary atmosphere stuff. It's the 101. But the, the whole point with the transit is that you're looking at the starlight passing through the mm -hmm. atmosphere or, or, or um, in, the, in the case of uh, emissions, lighting up the atmosphere. So you can't just say that you don't care what the starlight is doing <laughs> yeah, because the starlight from a really hot star and a really cold star is, is, are two very different types. And it's like, you know, we said that basically you see these absorptions and then you're figuring out what, what it was that subtracted. And then if you, but if you don't know what the thing is in the first place, then, then, then that's not going to help you. And some of these uh, colder stars, okay, Bibiana's talking about O and A stars. I don't want to even think about them. I'm more of a, a cold star <laughs> girl. Um, but, but these cooler stars, some of, some of the molecules that we can expect to find in, in um, some of these exoplanetary atmospheres, you can find on the surface of these stars. And like we said, you know, some of these hot Jupiters have similar uh, temperatures as some of these colder stars. So you count one and one at, together. Yeah. Right? Well, I mean, you're looking at the I mean, surely this. I mean, surely that might be a pro. I mean, here's a problem for you. What happens if an ultra hot, oh, no. if an ultra hot Jupiter, which must be pretty bright in itself, right? What happens mm. if that's got a a, 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 a large Titan esque moon? that's going around it as well. Surely, surely that's, that's another little bit of noise that you can have in your data. We absolutely Listeners can't see it, but me and Bibiana are both laughing. <laughs> <laughs> so at this conference in Las Vegas, they did not only talk about stars, they also talked about exomoons. Mm. And it's definitely also a field that is sort of starting to, to get there. So people are like, oh, planets are boring. Let's not look at exoplanets anymore. Let's go for their moons. And you're like, but we don't even understand Exo the moves. planet. We don't even talk about the star, <laughs> yeah. right? So yeah, it is definitely also a thing. So you, yeah. you know when you're procrastinating and you're like, 
you really need to do something, but it's really boring. So you end up doing the other thing that you also don't uh, need to do. Oh, like, so well, exo you know, moons this is, are yeah. what people do <laughs> when they should be doing yeah. ultra hot Jupiters. And ultra yeah. hot Jupiters are what, pe- what people do if they should be. What stellar, they should what be stellar looking. astronomers should be doing. <laughs> <laughs> Ouch, we got a bit. Okay, okay, okay. We okay, almost got I hung really up on this. I really have to apologize. Oh, no. <laughs> I really have to apologize to all the people who are interested in exo moons now. Actually I'm have, kidding. I actually <laughs> met the guy in Vegas that is working on exo moons i shouldn't be mean to him so no, no. i'm really it's sorry sibling, it's sibling rivalry it's, yeah that's uh, very we true. all make fun of each other's so, skills uh, they, we're competing to get time so I, i've exactly. just had a thought about exo x i mean exo hot jupiters ultra hot jupiters oh god how long do they last because presumably do they do they great question. do they get blown away because obviously you know if it's all atmosphere and they're that close to a, a, a raging star that's that's got a, a nice, good solar wind going, stellar wind. I mean, some of the planets are actually removed. Uh, uh, some of the planets are actually losing their atmospheres in the sense of yeah, literally the hmm. the star blowing away their atmospheres. So that's also something we can observe. So one thing that we always say is that these um, atmospheres are hydrogen and helium dominated. So the only two non-metals that we know, right? But non-metals. <laughs> non-metals. <laughs> and they are then sort of being observed as atmospheric escape. So there is actually stuff happening with like blowing away these atmospheres. But in the terms of lifetime, I must admit, I'm absolutely not an expert on how long these ultra Jupiters would yeah, because I don't think anyone is. But, I mean, like so, yeah, probably not, no. something like a yeah. you know those those types of supernova where where a, one star stripping the atmosphere off another star is can yeah. something like that happen with an ultra hot Jupiter? Could the could the host star be actually not just blowing it away, but actually stripping it away gravitationally and actually you know the the, the yeah? Well, we do get trails, right? Am I did I dream that? I feel like I've I've read about. Uh, sort of exoplanetary atmosphere trails yeah, where the, where, yeah. where the atmosphere, yeah, is the atmosphere yeah. pu- literally is pouring down the gravity well of the of the host star yeah. yes All absolutely right, uh, if i'm not completely mistaken and i'm very sorry to my supervisor if i am <laughs> i think the planet <laughs> Hello, uh, he, he has been observing uh kelp nine which is this like super hot planet that i have been talking about that is like four and a half thousand kelvin that we talked about mm. in, in the beginning that one, if I remember correctly, is losing its atmosphere to its home star in some sort of way. But I'm not entirely sure in, in what sense that is sort of something we can really observe because I think the time scales are so much longer than yeah. we could ever imagine. Um, well, again, this is where modeling comes in, in, yeah. in astronomy. You want to you wanna see what happens across 50 million years? Zoop, just speed it up. <laughs> just speed it up and hope it doesn't yeah. crash. <laughs> Exactly, which it will do. Five hundred. And, and if you're a betting person, is it possible if in a in a planetary system that has an ultra hot Jupiter, could you also have a nice rocky planet in the Goldilocks zone? Absolutely. I would say the cool thing with ultra Jupiters is that we don't know anything about. Or yeah, we do know some things, but we don't know properly how they form, how they migrate. And I was always like. Yeah, but if you have an ultra Jupiter that was formed outside where it's super cold and then it moved inwards, it must have like destroyed everything on the, on its way, right? They must have kicked out every other planet that was possibly in there. But that's not even the case. There are really some ultra Jupiters that have like even something inside, like in a closer in orbit or just outside. So I'm pretty sure that that doesn't matter in the end. 
And these planetary systems are then more in so-called resonance. So they have like cool resonance chain in mm. the way that they are orbiting I mean, because there's just so much going on. It'd be super cool, yeah. wouldn't it, if you, were, if you were a conscious, you know, if you were a spacefaring alien civilization watching your hot Jupiter go round your ultra hot Jupiter go round your toast <laughs> star. There'd be something, As you do. presumably that would look pretty cool. As a, as a, I think in so. the night sky, it would be even this... more impressive than looking at Venus transiting, mm. right? So it'd probably be well, this... bigger going in front. <laughs> This is this is something uh, me and me and Bibiana spoke about the other day, as you do mm-hmm. when you're just talking about hashtag just girl things, talking about <laughs> planetary atmospheres, um, about this thing that I, I think it's a it's an ongoing research question because I don't I I I haven't seen a, a <laughs> sorry let me start that again um, I think it's an ongoing research question because I don't remember ever seeing a sort of textbook this is the case answer about. Do all hot Jupiters form um, far away and then migrate inwards, or can they actually form closer to their um, their host star? Because one of the things you know we talked about um, how hot Jupiters is something that doesn't exist in our solar system, and in our solar system historically for a long time we were like, okay, well you have rocky planets and you have gas planets, um, and rocky planets must be the ones that form close to the star because that's where sort of rocks and metals can survive. And then only further out, is it cold enough for ice crystals and stuff like that to condense and form gas and ice planets, right? And the cool thing about exoplanets, the whole reason I would say to look at exoplanets is to see other versions of solar systems to get a a broader understanding of how planet formation more generally can work. And so with with the hot Jupiters, they really threw a wrench in the works for like our tidy little thing of rocky planets are close in and gas planets are far out. And then it's like, no. <laughs> and the question being then, yeah, how, how do these form and how do they survive whatever formation processes and, and moving around and all this stuff? And it, I, I remember we did an episode about solar system formation and we talked about how it's so hard to 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 rewind the clock yeah. and and to figure out like what actually happened. You can't CSI your way out of this one. Well, well, no, it's, it's back to my washing machine, isn't it? The yeah, it's yeah, the, yeah. You you take the clothes out at the end of the cycle. It's like, how did I put them back in? Surely, I, surely yeah. I can rewind the whole thing and work out yeah. what order I put. Figure out which did one. Did I put yeah, my yeah. pink socks in before my white shirt? I don't know. Yeah, and in which <laughs> when did I ruin this wash? <laughs> at what point? Yeah, it's a- some, point in time, yeah. some questions are better left unanswered. Though, on the other hand, yes, uh, pink sock in white laundry sounds absolutely terrible. But on the <laughs> other hand, I think figuring out how these ultra Jupiters form and probably migrate from outwards inwards, I think that's one of these standing questions, and I would love yeah. to see an answer. And mm. um, yeah. this is sort of where atmospheres and formation need to so, sort of go in hand in hand, because of course, depending on where you formed and where you sort of got your atmosphere as a gas giant, will change your composition of your atmosphere. Yeah. So it's not only that we say, okay, so you have formed, I don't know how far away from the planet. And this is how you got your atmosphere and that's it. But this atmosphere is probably very much sub- subject to change as it moves inwards yes. in a disk, for example. So I guess observations of atmospheres will not only tell you about, hey, what is in this atmosphere status now, but what are possible scenarios to actually get there. Absolutely. 
and how did this effect or how did this effect occur given your formation location? This is why I love protoplanetary disks so much and, and looking at the sort of planet formation, you know, how, what kind of childhood trauma in the early stages of the, of the planet's formation resulted in whatever complex uh, emotional issues that the fully formed adult planets have and looking at these sort of uh, pubescent planets in in the sort of stage in between. Because the protoplanetary disk is like the, the soil from which the flowering planets grow, right? And so looking at what is happening in the disk, what kind of chemistry is going on, what kind of like accretion processes are going on, all of these things are going to have an impact on the planets that are formed later on. So I think it's really cool that we're getting some really, really good, uh, great cutting edge observations of protoplanetary disks now. Um, that's another very young field, actually. Um, and, and the sort of resolution of which we're getting, like the ALMA observations of the protoplanetary disks are divine. I love them. Um, that is also and, the very I, scary part about them, right? What are they going to tell us in the end? Are they going to tell <laughs> exactly. us those plants should actually not exist? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Please do. don't. <laughs> How did that work? No, so exactly. for me, protoplanetary disks have always been like a very scary subject. So whenever <laughs> someone, yeah, I know you love them with, with I know. all of your body. For I me, really, so protoplanetary proto disks are, yeah. It's like you don't want to know. I really want to know. I really want to know everything about them. And I really want to understand how those disks that we observe actually result in a planet. Because for yeah. me, this is just mind-blowing that something that yeah. is orbiting around the forming star is just, bam, producing planets. And then all of a sudden, this planet decides, I don't like it here anymore and migrates <laughs> inwards. <laughs> I'm leaving. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> I'm leaving. The emotional yes, teenager have... planet. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so if you compare it to sort of the, yeah, I guess the life cycle of a human being and compare it to being a kid <laughs> and then going through your puberty yeah. and then becoming well, again, an it's adult. Again, complicated traumas in early childhood that result in migration, right? This, <laughs> we could write a whole thing about that. I mean, it, it, <laughs> we... it, may have st it may have migrated in, migrated back out and migrated back in again. Surely, it, it, yeah. like it could be all sorts. Sometimes well, it patches things up. Yeah, <laughs> it's like, yeah, leaves home. You know what, mom? You were right. It was a phase. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't like yeah, it there. No. Was too warm. No, no, but it, it is. It is super interesting, and I think, um, it's, it's, you know, it is super interesting. And looking at the sort of timescales that planets form, there, it's 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 actually quite fast, but of course not fast enough that we can watch it. Like I said, models are very useful because then you can sort of try to figure out um, in sort of 60 seconds what a 10 million year process might <laughs> might look like. Mm -hmm. um, but this is the thing with, with both protoplanetary disks and sort of ranging from young exoplanets to older exoplanets. All you're doing is looking at one system in a snapshot of time and you're looking at it today. What does it look like now? And then you can look at the star and say, okay, well, this star is 1 million years old or it's 10 million years old. And then you get a feel for how old then the system might be as a, as, as a whole. And, but, but you can't really like draw a linear uh, relationship like, okay, well, this system started out this way, then it did this, and then it did this. Like we're just sort of triangulated by looking at a bunch of different systems at different ages and then seeing what young systems and older systems have in common to figure out, well, this might be then a feature of the young part or the part that it's old, you know? 
So it's it's very difficult in astronomy in general, and, and this is the same for galaxies and whatever else. Because things happen on such enormous timescales, you can't just pick one and follow it. Uh, mm. Like, you know, researchers do with fruit flies or whatever. You you sort of just have to look at every kind of system and then sort of try to figure out how things scale with age and with time. In the end, you want a catch-all solution, right? You want to be able to run your model and be able, given these parameters that you put in in the beginning, you want to be able to reproduce every possible observation that we have. Yeah. And sadly, but also in a sort on a really good side, is that we're not capable of doing that. So meaning we still have our jobs. We still have time to figure it out. <laughs> Another paycheck. Another <laughs> uh, paycheck coming in. No, I think our curiosity is sort of fed by that, right? That yeah, we still absolutely. don't know how they form. We don't know how they gain their atmospheres. We don't know how they even become those planets that they are in yeah. the first Do they place. lose their atmospheres? Do they lose? They, they probably do at some point, but how exactly? So mm-hmm. I think this remaining question yes it will probably not bring peace on on earth that is not going <laughs> to happen but it's at least oh, yeah. going to trigger trigger people's interests in yeah in science it's going to sort of help people relate to what we're doing on a daily basis when you tell yeah, them yeah. we don't even know how our solar system forms <laughs> because there are so many groups out there that are not agreeing on any solution (laughs) so how are we going to figure out what happened light years away and the wonderful thing is that every time in science that you open one door you're not actually just opening the door to an answer you're just opening to another corridor with twenty five thousand more doors i was gonna say one day you'll get you'll get an email from an ai that will say yeah i've cracked it i've got i've got the model it (laughs) it explains everything (laughs) how Become I a painter. Uh, well, I mean, <laughs> yeah, please well, don't. How, how far away do you think that? How far away do you think that day is? Are we are we in the very early stages of this kind of uh, quest, or, or are Ooh, we in or are question. we in the closing stages of a quest? I think we're in the Renaissance, right? This is like we've just kind of recently, like, and I say, you know, twenty first century, made the breakthrough of like actually having the computing powers in 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 our technology to do big things. And I think that uh, uh, sort of t- the year 2000 to the year 2100 or something will probably be a, a, a sort of Renaissance golden yeah, age, I, right? I, I, I don't know. I, Sorry, I, heard, I hijacked you know, the well, question. I heard, I heard something just about the computing power. I heard something. When I was a kid, the Cray yeah. supercomputer came out and it was something like a billion calculations a second. And recently... The new Cray has come out, and it's a billion billion calculations. It's a billion times oh faster. <laughs> so, like, yeah, yeah, that's uh, nuts. Yeah, it's, it's, and you're only fourteen exactly, years old. Exactly, and this is like so. so. Well, no, from, from the eighties to now is like, yeah, it, yeah, it's a billion times faster. So, if they carry that kind of speed increase up, yeah, then who knows what kind but of? It's not only that, right? It's not just doing the calculations it's also how are we going to handle this data that Mm. is coming in i see myself struggling sometimes like taking observations from i don't know the very large telescope in chile with espresso and i'm like "Hmm, yeah that that takes a lot of time to actually look at this data because it's just so much and then i think of okay what am i gonna do when james webb data is gonna come in We are more postdocs. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to be screwed. That's my supervisor. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's that's why you need to encourage more people to do astronomy so that they can they can help you with the data, right? Absolutely. That's my favorite. That's always my go-to answer, like in a sort of outreach capacity when kids ask a question. 
um, that, that there is no answer to. Like questions like what shape is the universe or what's inside a black hole or something like that. I'm always like, well, when you find out, call me and we will split the Nobel Prize sum. <laughs> 50-50, right? Can we agree on that now? And I've, you know, I've said this probably to like 25 plus kids. So like, you know, statistically one day. Every time I say that, the chances well, go up by well, let, know, let's, a Well, let's try and enthuse a listener who was umming and ahhing about doing their mas- masters yeah. in astronomy. Do it. Well, do it. Uh, what's the most exciting thing you found out so far about about ultra hot Jupiters? What, 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 if, if, what's the poster child? What's the poster thing? <laughs> what's the headline of ultra hot Jupiters? Oh, wow. I'm not going to sell this very well. Uh, let, let me think, think about that for a second, because I would say, yeah, that I don't know anything about them, but that is not going to help people deciding to go into <laughs> I've been studying it for years, so I know tagline, I don't know anything. <laughs> yeah. No, I think for me, the most exciting part about Ultra Jupiters is that, yes, we don't have anything close to them in our own solar system. Yes, we have no idea uh, about how they formed. Yes, there are so many open questions, but still we are able to look at something that is so far away by just staring it for, at it for a night. For me, the most like crazy thing that happened is when I started my PhD and my supervisor was like, you're not going to use my code, you're going to write your own and you tell me when you detected iron on this planet because I know it's in there. And I was just sitting there, nothing worked out. I was sitting at my code trying to figure out why it wouldn't compile or run through. And I was like, okay, this is never going to happen. And by the moment I showed him the plot of my iron detection, which was the completely wrong velocity because I had done some... (laughs) plus minus sign wrong somewhere. But when I showed him, I detected iron on a planet. For me, wow. I just figured, wow, that's so weird. How how does that even work? Uh, And then uh, I tried to figure out what is actually wrong with this planet. There is iron on it. It sort of (laughs) hit me in that moment. I was like, okay, I'm looking at a planet super far away and it has iron on it. What? I mean, I do. I think that is one of the most exciting things possible is that you're the first person to observe it you're the first you, yeah. you are the i mean i always think how um what magical moment it must have been for galileo to kind of first see things through a telescope but it's just yeah. like mm. i'm the first person in all of history to ever have seen this or hook looking at bacteria and I go, mean, i'm the first <clears throat> i'm the first person <laughs> If you're if you're listening to this and you're considering a career in science, I actually do think uh, completely completely serious. I know I joke a lot on the show, but I, I I think that one of the most amazing things is exactly this feeling. You know, we we get really bogged down in the sort of day to day mundane. It's it's Tuesday at ten a.m. and your code's not compiling, and you're like, oh, I hate this, and you get so mad at this tiny little thing. But when you take a step back and the fact that as scientists you get to walk around and when people ask you what you do, you're like, I detect molecules on planets light years and light years away like it's such a a a humbling and and frankly just really cool thing to be doing with your life like you have one life what do you want to dedicate it to arts science Uh, whatever and and, and, and i'm assuming that that it's quite likely in the coming decades that one person (laughs) might be the person that is the first person to detect like unambiguous sign of extraterrestrial life yeah, and my money's on Bibiana. Wow. Just saying. <laughs> on on, on an ultra hot Jupiter. <laughs> 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 well, I wasn't yeah. really sorry. I don't think so. Yeah. But 
But Matthew, going back to what you said, do you really think that Galileo was there and was like, oh, I was the first one? I don't think <laughs> yeah, I you could have asked him that question in the sense of like, what is sort of your contribution? Hmm. What Would you be standing there and saying, yeah, I was the first one to detect that? I think it's for the future people to sort of tell what we did, what was crazy good about us or what was sort of yeah. the best thing. And yes, you're trying yeah, to sort of extrapolate it and tell people you should go into science because I am able to, to detect this. And yes, I was not the first to detect iron on this planet because I know my supervisor detected this iron on this <laughs> planet before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> not really two weeks before. He actually published yeah, yeah, yeah. Nature before with this detection. So I was like, okay, okay yeah. I was not the first one, but for I me, also it was found the first. <laughs> Yeah, no, absolutely. For, for me, it was the first. And science is very collaborative in this way. This is something that I, th- I think I think the sort of image of the the old white bearded guy mumbling in the basement is is you know it's so outdated and I, I think a lot of people fortunately know this now but you know science is a very collaborative thing it's it's very seldom at least in astronomy you know it's it's different I think like different different branches of science maybe have more solo teams or you know solo groups of just one or two people that do publications but at least in astronomy if you look at astronomy papers there's nearly always uh you know like five plus authors on a paper because there it's there's so many components to going from uh say an observation and then going through the modeling and then going through the calibration with the telescope and then actually making some kind of interpretation and then testing that and and all this there are so many steps um Especially, I, th- I would say that astronomy is is one of the more collaborative fields, which I think is a plus. I, I love I, the fact. Yeah, that, I mean, I know, think we, uh, we all work together. Anything that becomes extremely complicated and like just to be an you know to be an expert, you have to be hyper specialized. Yes, <laughs> you know, it's such a ma- it's yeah. a mature science, isn't it? You know, we 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 said Galileo. Yeah, you know, it's been it's been around since. Way before then, you know the the, the Babylonians or whatever. Yeah, who's, who was the first data scientist? That's <laughs> yeah, it's a, well, yeah, it's ridiculous. So you know, it's been around a long time, hasn't it? So you've got this really yeah. mature so, and and absolutely that kind of diversity and everything else is so important because you you, you yeah because it's it's complicated and you need that kind of diversity of thought to get come even yeah, close to, to answers. Yeah, I think that that puts it very nicely. I was in a Einstein museum just a few days back and I was just there like, this is not happening anymore nowadays that you like, if you think of these big names that you have in physics, I don't know, going from Einstein and then you go, I don't know, Lawrence, then you go, I don't know. There are so many names. I cannot even tell you all of them, but if you sort of go through all these names, this is not happening anymore. So we are all in this together, so to say, to quote high school musical on the show as well. (laughs) We're all in this together. We take it hand by hand. And it's not that I am detecting something for the first time, but it's the people that I have collaborated with that are detecting something for the first time. Mm. I mean, we are 24 authors on my very first paper, just, Bringing the point yeah, across yeah, yeah. where you said five plus. Yes, I have twenty four. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> minimum. Yeah, you yeah. can easily get fifty. Like yeah, I mean just 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 to roll back on my Galileo. I wasn't meaning that he had he wasn't humble, but I, <laughs> I, I more meant that the, the, the actual dis, the, the actual discovery, whether it's you or a team or or, or whatever, yeah. it, it's still and it's the fact it, it's still the fact that you're furthering the knowledge of humankind, isn't it? And yes, yeah. obviously you'll have people in the future looking back and deciding whether it was important or not. 
But at the, the but absolutely, you're right. You are right, though that that it is. You know, the feeling of oh my god, I'm I'm part of a discovery. Mm. This 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 uh, this is not diluted uh, by having numerous collaborators. You mm. you still have that feeling. If it's just you, or if you're a team of of twenty four, um, the 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 feeling is very valid and very very rewarding. Um, and very, very excellent for students considering careers in astronomy. So <laughs> it's a very, uh, uh, yeah, I'm going to say humbling again. It's, it's the best word I can think of. You know, is there any better reminder of how tiny well, <laughs> and yeah. insignificant we are? Uh, which, you know, actually I don't really, I, I don't really stand by. People often talk about this, like, oh, you know, when you look at astronomy and don't you think about how tiny and insignificant we are and, and, and stuff like that. But I actually feel like the opposite yeah, because do you, do you know, do you know who doesn't have thoughts and dreams and feelings and love stars? They're just big old well, hydrogen you things. Don't, you don't know that. They, they, I'm more special. The, 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 <laughs> I'm the, more complicated. The panpsychic might disagree with you, yeah. but. Um, it's a little bit of a fringe, it's a fringe theory. I'll let but. them. Yeah. But, you know, hum, humans, I, I think, you know, human human life and human humans as individuals are so wonderful and complicated and, and everything. And I think rather than looking at uh, all the different stars and planets and being like, wow, I'm so tiny. It's more like, wow, I'm so tiny and I'm uh, kicking ass uh, at yeah, like I'm still figuring getting it. this yeah, stuff yeah, out. Yeah, I mean, yeah. there, there is that. I'm cool. There is that frightening <laughs> thought, isn't it? That, that we might actually be the only creature in the universe that understand that that has begun to understand the universe yeah. and and that's and we're frightening idiots. but yeah that's quite frightening we're so stupid <laughs> <laughs> that's the worst part <laughs> have you seen politics lately oh no yeah it's crazy <laughs> i think on a closing note it's it, we we can talk about how it's so cool that you know linking it as well to to discoveries and all these sort of like philosophy of science things that it's so cool that something like ultra hot Jupiters, because exoplanetary science is so young, we we did not even really think about or or, or consider their the possibility of them existing, even just like within our lifetimes ago. You know, I I absolutely agree. Uh, the day I I met Didier Kelo, and yeah, I was just like, oh, you were the guy that detected the first exoplanet around the solar light star using the radial velocity method, and he was like. Uh, yes, nope. I am. And I, I remember it was like, uh, I'm not even sure. It, I think it was just before he got his Nobel Prize for it. And he was in Zurich. And I was just there like, oh my gosh, I just met the person that paper were always citing. And um, he was like, wow, I, I feel so important right now. And then I'm just thinking, yeah, well, it took quite a long time until he got his Nobel Prize for, for that. So, I mean, they discovered it in 1995. And they got their Nobel Prize in 2019. So it took quite some time to sort of realize that this is a major discovery. So I feel like even if we're doing this collaboratively, even if ultra Jupiters are probably not the targets that we want to live on at all, um, I feel like pulling all together in the same direction of trying to understand the universe, trying to understand how these planets form will bring us further together. Yeah, well, I mean, you never know where understanding will take you, anyway, do you? I mean, yeah. that—that's what I like about define research. understanding. Yeah. Define understanding, right? No, absolutely. It's 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 such a young field, and and we don't know that much. But I do think we can say with confidence that there's there's a lot of a lot of understanding coming our way over the next uh, just few years. Of course, decades and centuries, but even just in in within the next decade, I think for sure. 
some very exciting things happening. Well, thanks for thanks very much for for joining us. This has been an awesome awesome chat. Uh, I've I'm I'm trying to think about all the craziness that would be happening trying to live on an ultra hot Jupiter right now. <laughs> don't try, don't try. <laughs> Thank you very much for having me, Bibiana. It's been super great to have you here. Thank you so much for joining us and and teaching us all about our our favorite. Now you can really impress your friends uh, when they inevitably ask you, as kids do these days, what is your favorite type of exoplanet? And you can say, actually, my favorite is an ultra-hot Jupiter. Um, uh, what's your, what's your favorite ultra-hot Jupiter? <laughs> oh, for me, that's definitely Wasp-189b, which, by the way, my mom Obviously. asked me, why would you call a planet like that? And I was like, mom, it was not me, sadly. <laughs> she was like, can't you just call it BB-1? I was like, I'm going <laughs> to continue that next time. So sadly, the name is not really catchy, but for me, that's my absolute favorite planet because it was the planet that I worked on first in my PhD, where we discovered titanium oxide, where we found sort of weird things happening in the atmosphere. And for me, that was just mind blowing to see. I will send an email to the Exoplanet Archive and ask them formally to rename it to Bibiana's Mom's Planet, because I think that's super cute. (laughs) The Interplanetary Podcast is alive! There we go, Lynn. And thanks very much for organising that. That was an awesome interview. I, I'd never heard of ultra-hot Jupiters before. I'd heard I, of hot Jupiters, but never ultra-hot Jupiters. You know what? Me neither until quite recently. It's when I started um, started my PhD that I started hearing about this, but it's it's kind of a new-ish term, I think. I mean, exoplanet science in as a whole is so young compared to to basically any other part of astronomy. I mean, most of astronomy, if people have been looking at stars for a very long time, uh, but people have not been looking at exoplanets in details for long at all. So we're still we're still taking uh, you know submissions for ideas <laughs> about fun names yeah. and things like that. I guess it's like the, class- the classification of things is a bit like evolution, isn't it? And the classification of animals. Yeah, it's, you're just going to get an explosion of classification of exoplanets as yeah. as we discover them just like we did fossils and things like that and now that's another episode species. idea talking about classification of things in in space because yeah. that's a whole deep dive <laughs> i really i mean even classifying what a planet is is very contentious can poor worms, pluto yeah. for example i had a i had a talk with uh uh, actually, my old my old school that I went to, um, I had a little talk with the year eight class and I was answering some questions about space. Um, and we got to talking about why Pluto is not a planet. Oh. I'm, I'm just, I'm so sorry, but I completely agree. It's it's not a planet. Come it's on. Planet, the moon is, is bigger than Pluto. How can Pluto be a planet? Gotta well, be consistent, and it, it, guys. I think the big one is it hasn't cleared its orbit. That's of, the one. I, yeah. I think you're allowed to have Trojans. Yeah, but you're not allowed okay. to have like you're not we allowed, allowed to, Trojans. Yeah, we're allowed Trojans, <laughs> but we're in the Lagrange point. Yes. but you're not you're not allowed to be in a kind of great no. big asteroid field yeah. full of similar sized objects. That's yes. that's ridiculous. You must so, be this big to ride this yeah. solar system. If there, you know, if there was a big if there was a big old planet in the Kuiper Belt that had mopped yeah. up all your Plutos and your Vestas, yeah. then yeah, that, that would be have been like, a planet. You'd well be a planet, done, girl. You well are done. definitely <laughs> a planet. Hell you yeah. are definitely a planet. <laughs> Congratulations. So, yes. Well done. You have moved so, on to the next round. <laughs> <laughs> you have moved on. To, yeah. yeah. What, and what's then next and then she battles Jupiter. Yeah, well, and then maybe Jupiter pla- ba- battles brown dwarf, exactly. then brown oh, no. dwarf battles sun. Yeah, 
which just, and it just goes up like that and just up and up and up until you up have entire galaxies battling until it's yeah and yes black holes supermassive yeah. black holes oh my god I would watch that is someone taking yeah. notes we need the sci-fi to exist <laughs> um uh, I need to thank the I need to thank the rest of the patrons, but actually I did want to mention one thing because the, there's one there's one mission that I know that the patrons are excited about, and that's the um, Psyche mission, which is a which is a <gasps> yeah. talking of planetesimals. I, I guess that the, the um, Psyche mission is a is to an asteroid that looks like it's a proto planet that had its outside smashed off and just left this iron core, and and NASA are sending a probe to it, but it's been delayed. It's not going to launch this year anymore because they just can't get it ready in time. So, Oh no, what? That's never Gutted. happened before. A yeah, delay? No, that never happened. <laughs> a delay? Can you believe How unforeseen. Thing? Yeah, I no, I, I, I'm, I'm obsessed with this mission. I'm super excited about it. I'm not going to get my hopes up about uh, launch dates anytime soon, but it's it's really, really cool. It's, it's going to be really cool. I really hope that the pictures are going to be as spectacular as I hope they're going to be. I, I hope like, so. I, I hope so, particularly because there's lots of artist impressions that are really good. Yeah, they're setting the bar too high. I feel like they should they should like cut back a little bit, go back to the crayons maybe, and then people mm. will be really, really excited. I'm also very excited about July 12th is when we're going to get the first real images from James Webb. Oh my God. Well, I heard a little bird in the shape of a NASA administrator on some kind of panel. I can't remember who it was. Uh, did say that apparently one of the first pictures we're going to get will be an extragalactic deep field, kind of like the Hubble one that's going to really show off the telescope's abilities. So I'm very, I mean, I don't even, I don't even work in, in, uh, for me, if it's like more than sort of a hundred light years away, I'm kind of not interested because I, (laughs) so, I mean, I don't really do outside of our galaxy stuff, but even I'm very excited about that. I think that's a great way to Would you like it? Would you like it if it managed to get a, you know, an image of Proxima C? Would that be good? Or yeah, that maybe would, that, that would be fine, I guess. <laughs> I'm saying this <laughs> like wild to... dribbling kind of thing and foaming at the mouth. Yeah. Yes, I would. I guess I would be fine with that. I guess that would be yeah, kind of cool. Okay, okay. Whatever. Right. That would be cool. Sweating. Yeah. Or, or, or the Trappist system or something like that. Managed to get some All of the spec, above. Spec, spectroscopy of some spectroscopy. Trappist yeah. planet. That'd be quite good, wouldn't it? I guess I would be okay with that. Okay, you good, know. good, good. <laughs> if anyone wants to send me know. some James Webb data for this. <laughs> Although we are, actually, we are actually getting a lot of uh, exoplanet data um, from James Webb. So there's a lot of telescope time allocated to exoplanet stuff, which I think is really cool. I think it's very nice that that uh, we're getting so much attention from the Surely, community. Surely, yes. I feel as though that's why it was built for exoplanets. I feel as though that's, that's surely- I mean, in my heart, it. yes. Uh, yeah. I don't know. I, well, I mean- I, when did they start planning it? 96 or something like that? Yeah. Which, well, it's just I mean, when they, yeah, exoplanets were just starting to be cool just, then. Just about, yeah. Unlike the hot, ultra hot Jupiters, which are just starting to get hot. Hot, 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 and ever more hotter. Right. Well, I know one person that's going to be upset by the delay in Psyche, and that's Bob Hodges. I know that that's his favourite um, mission. Uh, so sorry about that, Bob. Uh, Bob's one of the uh, uh, patrons, as is Alden Vala. Ben Guthrie, Bob Moore, Gene Watchtanik, Jacob Economy, Jim King, Kenton Hokanson, Mark Huber, Mark Kelly, Mark Schoen, Marissa Davis, Malta <laughs> Keisling, Neil Hansen, Niklas Gillenstein, Paul Hilton, Rob Annable, Ronald Hatcher, Seth Haberline, 
Steve Croucher, Tristram Tupperhide, Tyrrell McAllister. But there we go. Excellent. Um, Lynn, what have you got coming up other than pictures from James Webb? Anything fancy? Anything fancy? Well, fancy and fancy. Yeah, I've got a very crazy summer in front of me, actually. I'm going away to conferences and presenting some of my work, which is very exciting. And um, I mean, at least we're all making the assumption that COVID has now gone away forever. So I guess it's back to in-person conferences and we'll see if <laughs> yeah. I get sick. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's very, very exciting. I mean, uh, there's there's a lot coming up with um, uh, CryoRes Plus, the telescope that I'm working with. And I might even, I'm, maybe I'm going to jinx it now by saying it, but I might even be going to Paranal at some point in the next year to go Ooh. to the telescope to use it. Oh yes! Now tell me cool. you're going to tell me you're going to interview someone when you get there. I had not thought of that, but now that you've said it, of course I'm going to do that. That's a oh, genius yes. idea. Yeah, it's yeah. more than well. I am a genius. That is true. That is like, true. Rightly, rightly point out. <laughs> rightly so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what right, about yourself? It. Oh, wait, oh, well, no, well, yeah, yeah. We already covered that. We already covered that. I've got enough excitement for one year, and that's going to see them. Yeah. Hopefully, fingers crossed, the maiden launch of, of Vega. See, it's going to be absolutely brilliant. That it, it's it's the best of all the rockets in terms of how quickly it gets off the launch pad. It is it's like a, a it is like a rocket. It it is a proper Mentos bullet. and Coke. Yeah, exactly. That's it what's is, in there. It is, it's out of there. It's not mess. It's not like Saturn V that sort of hangs around at the launch pad for about yeah. half a day, going oh, like I'm a just board. About to get on. <laughs> like a bored teenager. I'm yeah, trying to. I'm going to climb out of Earth's yeah. <laughs> gravity well. I promise. Yeah. You keep going, <laughs> right. baby. You can yeah, do you it. Keep, you keep. Oh yes, you've just done it. Yeah. Um, right. That's it. I'm going to say goodbye to the podcast now. Say goodbye. Bye, everyone. Bye, bye. Bye, bye. 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 bye.